G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation. The percentage of workers taking up union membership has fallen to a new low, according to figures out at the end of 2022. This is disturbing news when you consider that the unions represent arguably the most coordinated working class focus group in Australian civil society, working for equitable outcomes for the majority of the Australian population. Big words, big statement, you might say, but at the end of 2022, RAW Women's Rights at Work Conference gave centre stage to some very interesting discussions around what could be called industrial issues, giving an insight into how far-ranging and inclusive the broader union movement sees its role when it comes to organising. First issue that caught my ear was Hessen Jong from the Migrant Workers Centre who makes it plain that migration policy is an industrial issue. My name is Hessen and I do the research and policy work at the Migrant Workers Centre and a very brief introduction to the Migrant Workers Centre. We're a non-profit organisation based here in Carlton and we are dedicated to advocating for migrant workers' workplace rights. And uh, what we um, usually do is um, uh, representing all workers who were born overseas and working in Australia. However, unfortunately, most of the people who come to our centre are people on temporary visas. And we have a proof. We, uh, we have done research and there is a significantly, um, statistically significant correlation between the uh, one's visa type, the, the, especially the type of visa you come with uh, when you first arrive in Australia and their experience of uh, exploitation in this country. So we know for a fact that settlement right is an industrial right. So um, what today we, uh, I'm trying to um, tell you uh, is about um, our experience, a little bit of uh, the stories that um, women migrant workers have shared with us and uh, what we have learned so far. Um, you know, as part of the the campaign for settlement rights, we do annual um, annual surveys, and at the end of the survey, we have this question: uh, Would you like to talk to um, me? <laughs> and uh, many people say yes, and uh, you know, I get back to them and have a, like one hour uh, Zoom meeting, and uh, I I meet amazing people through this, and uh, there are so many interesting stories that I can share with you, but let me. Um, share uh, one small story from an engineer who was from the Philippines. So this Filipino engineer, she said, I worked in Qatar for seven years, and I loved working there as an engineer, but Qatar didn't have a permanent migration program. 
that's when my migration agent advised me, hey, go to Australia and get a, a temporary regional visa, and there you can build a more secure future. So in Australia, I came, and no one was giving me a job. Although I was already registered as an engineer in Australia, I ended up taking a job as draft person. A draft person is someone who prepares drawings and supports engineers. I am paid significantly less than what I used to earn in Qatar. At work, there are four engineers and three drafts person, and all the three draft persons are migrant workers, whereas the engineers are Australian-born citizens. And two of the engineers are not even engineers. They are students with no experience, and they are yet to finish their degrees. I have a master's degree in addition to seven years of professional experience as an engineer, and I have to work under their instructions. And I am the only woman, and only Asian woman, that is, in the workplace. So maybe that's why I am not assigned proper tasks. I ask for on-site tasks, but they only take the other two drafts persons who are men, two sites. So uh, when I worked in Qatar, which is a Muslim country, I never experienced discrimination at work based on my gender. <laughs> I could go everywhere, do everything I was qualified for. So in my experience so far, Qatar is better than Australia for women migrant workers. That's why I am going back to Qatar at the end of this year. I have an Australian-born partner here, and I'm taking him with me to Qatar. <laughs> So uh, it's no secret that Australia's temporary migration programs uh, contribute to perpetuating discrimination and exploitation against migrant workers. And uh, what this engineer story tells us is that uh, exploitation against migrant workers has gendered aspect to it. So many women workers, they um, are subject to unfair treatment at work because of the prejudice and stereotypes about women, migrant women. And uh, interestingly enough, we don't hear uh, often about these kind of stories. The media, when they report about migrant workers, they focus on you know, horrendous stories of exploitation. Oh, this person was paid like this many dollars an hour, or like something happened to this person and that, that person died. Or, you know. And they, um, because they uh, look for those horrendous stories, they, they tend to cover more men than women. And um, so women make rarely headlines, but um, you know, only when there is sexual harassment involved, they will make he headlines. And unfortunately, at the Migrant Workers Center, we provide assistance to everyone, everyone, but interestingly enough, so far, only 33% of the people who are making appointments with us are women. And Undia, I'm so sorry. <laughs> On the other hand, when I do the annual survey and the in-depth um, uh, follow-up interviews, the numbers are quite different. The people who um, participate in our annual surveys, 57% women, and the in-depth um, interviews, 67% are women. So how do I, uh, um, how should I interpret this discrepancy? And um, I think 
Women migrant workers, they experience workplace issues, of course, the same rate or even higher rate um, than male migrant workers, but they are less motivated to speak up and defend their rights because it is so damn hard for them to find a job in the first place. So when they have an employment, uh, especially a secure one, they don't want to blow it up. And... um, as we saw in the Filipino engineer's case, they also um, tend to interpret the issue more a personal and cultural issue. So she interpreted the, the case not in an, an industrial way, like she didn't talk to the union or she didn't, well, she didn't have any women colleagues, so there was no one to talk to. But um, um, instead of understanding it as a workplace issue, these women who are isolated um, and in male-dominant industries, they tend to th- think it's a, a personal challenge to overcome. So um, still, there is silver lining. One thing <laughs> um, we can be sure of is that when women are approached, these women, they are more than willing to share their stories. They want to talk to us, and um, it, it means that uh, through proactive organizing, we can turn these um, experiences into an industrial issue, um, into something that we can all uh, work together against. So I think um, the conversation is a really key. And let me share with you another story, uh, which is a little bit more depressing. Um, uh, viewers a lot. Um, this story was uh, already covered by ABC. I helped them uh, talk to the worker. And the reason why this story was shared by ABC was because it has sexual harassment involved. Um, so um, this is a marketing manager. I came to Australia on a student visa. When I finished my degree, it was so difficult to find a job, but then I was so lucky to find an employer who was not only offering me a job, uh, but also a visa sponsorship. So I was so happy, but then I realized that I was not so lucky after all. The boss would make me to stay late alone with him or um, ask me to accompany him on overnight business trips. And when I made excuses to refuse him, he would casually remind me about my visa (laughs) or threaten me that I might lose the job. So I stayed at the job for four years because according to the current visa regulations, a permanent visa transition can be arranged only by my current employer who has the record of employment for years. So um, now that my permanent visa could be granted any time, the boss started touching me, uh, and I was so embarrassed and scared, I went to police, but there was nothing I could do as there was no evidence witness. One morning, I was fired by a text message, and then the boss came to my place, made a scene yelling at me that I was not cooperative. I talked to a lawyer because I was about to lose both my job and years of effort towards settlement right in Australia. And my boss, uh, sorry, my lawyer, he negotiated with my boss and made the boss sign a deed stating that uh, he would keep me on the book for five more months uh, so that I could get my permanent visa in exchange for my silence about the sexual harassment. (laughs) 
the visa was really expected uh, one or two months later. However, the visa processing got delayed for no reason, and five months later, the boss reported my termination to the Home Affairs. So my temporary visa was canceled, uh, permanent visa application was rejected. Now I am in the process of appealing those decisions. Um, so, yep. Um, when it comes to migration policies, um, there is an old trick. Put the word skilled in front of everything, and then you can hush all those anti-immigrant uh, groups. Uh, for example, skilled migration, skilled occupation, skilled workers, then uh, people say suddenly, okay, it's okay to have some migrant workers um, coming to Australia. However, what people don't really understand is that when you put the word skilled, a lot of skilled migrant workers are under these kind of shackle to their um, like employer. They are um, bound to work only for that employer and they can only get permanent residency through that employer. So I have met so many migrant workers under uh, employer sponsorship they don't get lunch breaks, they don't um, get holidays, um, public holidays, and uh, they dare not defend their rights because they know that visa means livelihood for them. And also, um, this marketing manager just let us know that there's a ge very gender-specific specific implications when it comes to employer sponsorships. <coughs> So employer sponsorship is an institution that fundamentally encroaches working people's rights and dignity because it gives the employer a comprehensive power over workers' livelihood. So we must fight against this institution that condone exploitation and violence against working people. And migration um, policy is an in industrial issue that we all need to work against. Thank you. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. In today's program, we are at RAW, Women's Rights at Work Conference, held late last year. We are looking at some of the broader issues of equity that underline the relevance of union organising. We've just heard from Hesen Jong from the Migrant Workers' Centre who makes it clear that migration policy is an industrial issue. Now we hear part of a talk given by Jamar Hersey from the Women of Colours Network and a CPSU member. It was from the Solidarity with Women of Colour panel. Ms Hersey gives a fascinating account of effective organising. I'm Jamad and I'm, I am from Somalia. I've lived here for 10 years. Um, came here as an international student. So I work for the Victorian government. I, alongside with a lot of other women of colour, found ourselves in workplaces where, um, when I say workplaces, I'm talking about the public sector. Um, it's also in the private sector. Uh, where we were treated differently, uh, whether that was dealing with currents um, or racial micro microaggressions or outright discrimination. What that looks like for women of color is that you, it, it means dealing with that triple biases based on race, gender, religion, and all the other identities that, that comes with all pop people or, or walk people. 
We also found out that there was a lack of insight and obliviousness to the new senses of working with BIPOC people. And then we, what we also found was that eventually BIPOC people who were experiencing bullying, harassment, discrimination at work would have eventually either leave or if they decided to go through the informal, formal complaint systems, it came at the cost of their well-being or in the future towards their career progression. So organically, we found ourselves during lunch breaks, after work hours, listening to each other. Women coming together and sharing their bullying experiences by the boss or in the same workplace. And then organically built this safe space where frustrations, tears, stories were shared. And we also knew that we were like about 10 of us. So the work I'm about to share is also done by incredible co-founders, incredible women of color that are not here with me, so it's not my work um, alone. And so we we developed this, we became essentially therapists. And then we're like, what are we gonna, and then we, so we decided to do something about it because we knew there were other women of color who didn't have the opportunity to come to us to share and let that out. So we're like, we need to do something about this. And, and we officially um, started this um, network called Victorian um, Public Sector Women of Color. Um, it's a staff-led collective. And it's run by and for self-identifying women of color. It was launched in 2019 and run by the by VPS volunteer staff. So volunteer, we're not paid. What I'm about to share is an incredible amount of work. It's incredible work, network, that we all do on top of our nine to five. Organically grew members, women of color members and allies. And so we've got about nearly 900 members. Um, yeah, since 2019. The aim of the network is to strive to create a safe and inclusive space that allows women of color to better contribute and to f inform the development of programs, policies that better meet the needs of Black, uh, women of color and also all of DPS staff um, to advocate and improve the DNI practices that exist across VPS and then also we targeted um, and it's championed and targeted people who are in leadership so that they could carry that voice. Uh, we've been able to gain visibility internally and externally um, across VPS. We've been able to develop a real safe space for women of color um, so there are two different safe spaces. There's one that is only for women of color where they can express their grievances, share tears, and then there's a space that is shared with allies. And for us, that was really important to, to, to separate because there is the potential or the risk of an individual woman unintentionally taking space. We want to make sure that women of color members feel comfortable before they can, you know, it took me a long time to sit here and talk to people. Um, so we, we need to, we, we recognize that we need to, we needed to do that. Um, with the impact is that we've been able to create local women of color network across departments. So your department of water, environment, DELP, uh, department of education, um, Victoria Police, it was the most recent one. It's been the hardest one, but it's, it's there. Uh, Department of Justice, and they all sit under the, the VPS-wide Women of Color Network. We support them, and we've supported them. Because we also recognize that each department, Women of Color, experience their own, and that our experience wasn't the same as theirs. So we needed to harness that difference, but also support 
we have champions of the network. It was a very strategic move. Um, about seven to eight champions um, of the network, and their role is to help us transform and embed mechanism for all sorts of things impacting women of color. Um, some of these champions are really in high positions, so like Gender Equality Commissioner, she's one of um, our champions. We meet regularly. We have deputy secretaries across department who are champions, and we have we've approached them. They've been a support supportive of our work because um, they were they've recognised the need, and they some of them are women of colour. Um, we we do provide leadership development and mentoring programs. A lot of networking, a lot of networking events for both allies and members. But we the biggest work actually what we have done was that the uh, DNI report, diversity and inclusion report. It was the first of ever its kind. It didn't exist, and this one was one that delved into the experiences of women of color. The survey asked questions around that questions that led to collecting the experiences of women of color. The, what we found out when we were setting up the network was that we had a lot of anecdotal stories. Stories that were anecdotal. That was true to us. To us. We knew it. Um, you gave an example of how that idiot who would change the meeting. Mm-hmm. It, that happened, it happened to me. I had a, a boss that were two of them that changed meeting times or would send me a meeting times five, before, five minutes before it happened and then would say, oh, she's not here. And then or one of my colleagues would look up for me. I was in a role where eight women left. No, seven women left and one man. Um, one man of colour and then the seven women of um, both white women and women of colour, um, two of them, left and no one and they left because this, this guy bullied them this, and, and no one did anything about it and then I also walked in and then second week I was like what is happening, was being left out, um, was being told things like um, you didn't do your work if, when he sent me one case, there were so many cases, but I do remember one time that he sent me a, 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 a task, something to do, um, 10 minutes before it was supposed to be done, and then within that 10 minutes, we were walking into a meeting with a chairperson, and then I was supposed to talk about it. And then he would always throw me under the bus and be like, oh, Jamal, I sent you that email, and then, this was second week, and then obviously I'm trying to be polite and also Somalis and Africans we like to always it was an older man so like this thing about you know age and respect and I do respect and it should be but I had that and I was like okay don't say anything and I'll pull him to the side after the meeting and be like you sent me this meeting, this thing 10 minutes ago there was no way I could have done this submission paper or like a, <laughs> a whole page and then he'd be like oh, oh I'm, I'm sure I sent you yesterday he didn't and then eventually I would like I, call, I started calling him out in the meeting. I was like, no, you actually sent me 10 minutes ago. And if you wanted me to do something about it, I would prefer you to give it to me a week before, minimum three days. And then, and then everyone would be like, I, will, I became the angry black woman. And I was, like, I was like, I don't care anymore because first of all, you don't feed me or you pay my salary, but I'm like, you, I don't care. I'm like, I would rather choose me than be put through these horrendous feelings of like, feeling inept, feeling inadequate, feeling like... Because yeah. we women, we always question ourselves. Yes. So I would go into into rooms and we'd be like, I've forgotten how to write. <laughs> <laughs> this report, this one-of-a-kind one, one report, eventually put evidence-based 
evidence to all the anecdotal stories. So now the people that we were talking to in leadership, DEPSEX, and all the directors can no longer say, or oh, it's a he say, she say. But like we ran, we ran two actually report, uh, uh, surveys. One was to do with recruitment retention and the and the, the role that women of color were in. And classically, like it was very similar to also all women. They were always overqualified for the role they were in. Um, it was a fixed term. It was a precarious job. But also what, it was all the women of color were leaving within six months, one year, because the workplace was very unsafe, culturally unsafe. And so we found evidence that all the stories that are being told are actually now you could hold accountable, you could hold leaders accountable. So we put five recommendations. One of them was the whole of government um, cultural diversity strategy, strategy and action plan. Um, mandatory training and frameworks to improve cultural safety, intersectional data collection, because the, the data collection that we do in public sector or even in the private is quite, it's, it's quite poor. Um, the good thing was also the impact that we had was the, the Victorian government's response to the inquiry into um, the economic equity for Victorian women picked it up, some of the recommendations that we did. I remember one of the recommendations was addressing challenges faced by women of colour working in the public sector and developing strategies to address racism and discrimination in the public sector. CPSU did also the, the, the report, the Women of Colour report, and also reiterated some of our work and some of our recommendations, as well as the, um, the Victorian Trades Hall Council submission on anti-racism. Um, they, they reiterated our reports, our recommendations, and basically said, can you please pay them for the work that they're doing because they're doing you a favor, which was good. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, CPSU. I remember when we started the network, I'm a member of the CPSU, and then there are a lot, a lot of other allies and women of color who are members of CPSU, and that's how CPSU came to, to be about, and we approached them. They actually, we both approached each other, and they were recognizing that this was work that needed to be done. It was a gap, and then they were quite supportive and are still really supportive of the work that we do. So how did we get? How did we build solidarity, community, and network? Or what does that look like? There is a safety in numbers. We have found incredible white women who recognize that they needed to be worked on in this space. Were genuine and had the same visions and were genuine about um, the work that we were doing and wanted to come and support. Um, there's also strength in vulnerability, in the sense of acknowledging that as white women, white people, you are part of a system that perpetuates the status quo for women of color. And I know that some, a lot of the times it's not intentional. The systems and structures that are in Australia are not built for people of color or BIPOC people. And sometimes when I experience any discrimination or racism, like I go, of course I am. Like look at the foundation of the country. Like of course. There were a lot of people who were white women um, because they were allies um, who were willing to go through active reflection, self-assessment, being aware of their privilege. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the program, the podcast is available at 3cr.org.au or at your favourite podcast site. And you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by ringing 03-9419-8377 and leaving us a message. My name's Annie McLaughlin.
Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. And until next time, stick together and keep safe.
Mm-hmm.